time again for Doc Jacques, your Addiction Lifeguard podcast. I am Dr. Jacques de Bruckert, a psychologist, licensed professional counselor, and addiction specialist. If you are suffering from addiction, misery, trauma, whatever it is, I'm here to help. If you're in search of help to try to get your life back together, join me here at Doc Shock, your Addiction Lifeguard, the Addiction Recovery Podcast. to be real clear about what this podcast is intended for. It is intended for entertainment and informational purposes, but not considered help. If you actually need real help and you're in need of help, please seek that out. If you're in dire need of help, you can go to your nearest emergency room or you can check into a rehab center or call a counselor like me and talk about your problems and work through them. But don't rely on a podcast to be that form of help. It's not. It's just a podcast. It's for entertainment and information only. So let's keep it in that light, all right? Have a good time, learn something, and then get the real help that you need from a professional. So why is it that every time somebody uh, is dealing with an addict, they always end up getting overly involved and enmeshed in what's going on in their lives? It's really funny. Um, it's so predictable. Parents, uh, husbands, wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, brothers, sisters. It's really interesting. I get so many calls um, from people who are looking for help for loved ones who have a problem. And it's it's a fascinating thing when they're... Um, when they're dealing with them because the stories that, that I get from that person who's calling me is always one of like, uh, you know, there's a lot of enmeshment and manipulation and, and over uh, involvement in the addicts lives. But what, what's, it, it, it's like, and, and, you know, honestly with, with people who have addiction, the problem is that um, you get very dysregulated, you know, the term um, affect dysregulation, which means mood instability that's a clinical term for it, uh, goes on when people get very upset about what other people are doing. And so I wanted to address that because I think one of the big issues in recovery that keeps people from really getting into solid recovery is this involvement in other people's lives and the drama that goes on. And sometimes it's a very high level of drama that goes on within a family. And that could be a family culture of that. They have a history of that. And other times it's just something that kind of came on as the relationship evolved over time. But the idea of you somehow taking on other people's stuff and then getting uh, dependent upon them is really fascinating. Um, We see it all the time with people who are involved with individuals who have uh, borderline personality disorder. There is this codependency that occurs and this disorder dependency that goes on by the person who is the um the the loved one of the the bpd uh person the borderline personality disorder so what happens is the bpd person creates such a a distortion of of what reality is that the person who's involved with them becomes dependent on that and there's this weird victimization dependency thing that goes on that's in, in an extreme case, and especially if you have a diagnosed mental health problem that's, that's severe, like BPD. Outside of that, if you have a relationship 
that is being influenced by drugs or addiction, dependency on, on substances, or it could be food or gambling, porn, sex, things like that. But any of those, what happens is the person who is being subjected to that um, many times starts taking on caretaker role. Uh, and, and then they have this dysfunction that just kind of obliterates their ability to function uh, normally. People who have addiction sometimes fall into that as well. Like they, they're over involvement in somebody and they have alcoholism, for example, the alcoholic can get all wrapped up in other people's problems, the loved one's problems. And there's this weird enmeshment dependency thing. And when I'm trying to help somebody get through that, it's really fascinating because they really struggle with um, trying to uh, decouple from that. And, and it's a struggle. It permeates language they use. It permeates thoughts they have. It permeates actions they take in and around that person. It, it's, it's every part of it. And it's frustrating. And I often wonder sometimes when somebody comes in and they have uh, addiction, whether it's drugs or alcohol, and I, I'm trying to drill down. The, invariably there is something that has gone on in their childhood. It's, it's, it's a hundred percent in my practice. It's a hundred percent of the time. I have never had anybody come in who did not have that going on in their childhood. Um, but it also kind of gets overlaid with things like current drama or trauma. And so teaching somebody how to, to decouple themselves from that is part of what I do. And I think it's a vital, important, uh, vitally important for that person to be able to do that. And it's difficult because that's how they've existed for so long. And so I came up with this, um, this idea, uh, that, that I heard, uh, that I thought, you know, maybe that should be something that could be the focus, especially early on in recovery for either the codependent person or the addict, um, and it's this very simple thing. Uh, you don't have to let it go if you never picked it up in the first place. It's very, very difficult sometimes to get people to stop picking things up and then complaining about the fact that they have them in their possession and they're carrying them around. It's really interesting. Uh, <laughs> it's, it, this, is, this is what I've said. And I said this to the person who was complaining about it. I said... You know, you don't have to let it go if you never picked it up in the first place. And that it's that picking it up thing. That's where the, the problem is. You picked it up in the first place. And, I, you know, God bless the person who wants to help. I mean, I'm a helper. I'm in the helping profession. But there's a time and place for everything. And you can't be there trying to fix and solve everybody's problems. If you do, you're just going to burn yourself out or you're actually causing more issue uh, than solving. And so not learning how to not pick it up in the first place. Um, it is, it, it's an art. <laughs> it's really, it's an, an art. It's, it's a, uh, it's a change. Uh, call, I, I consider, especially with um, marriages and families, when you have addiction, it's a culture. There's a culture that develops around that. It's not just an action. It is a culture, the culture of alcohol, the culture of drugs, the culture of destruction. And so I'm going to, I'm going to learn how to not pick up the stuff that other people have been, 
have been throwing around. So, for example, uh, a, a, a woman comes in and she is an alcoholic and she is distraught because her husband is constantly um, accusing her of things and making making um, accusations that aren't true, um, that she's, you know, she's not working. She's not working. Well, she can't because she's taking care of the kids. And no, so so then she's lazy because she's not working and maybe she's not doing enough of what he thinks she should be doing with her time. And he's resentful because he doesn't like his job or, you know, whatever it is. So he starts making all these comments and things that, that are meant to hurt, right? So they, they tend to be more personal and they're meant to hurt. So they're said in a way that is very hurtful um, or passive aggressive, one or the other. And the, so the woman comes in and she's been drinking. Now she's, she's had a father who was, who was verbally abusive in her house when she was growing up. So now she's married a verbal abuser herself, of course, because that's what we do. If we don't work on our stuff, we end up marrying the thing, uh, the issue that we didn't want in our life and because we experienced it as a child. So we just replicate it. And there's a whole, you can listen to other podcasts I've done about that. It's like, you know, you're replicating because you think you can fix it this time or you know how to handle it. And it's not that big of a deal. Or you're just willful blindness and pretending like it's not really there. You can listen to the other podcast to find that out. In any case, so this is what she's got. And she's drinking. She has a history of, of alcoholism. All right, so she comes in and she's like, my life's a mess and, and I, I got to do something about the alcoholism. Okay, great. So um, we start working on that. Maybe she goes to rehab. Maybe she doesn't have to. Um, but, you know, you detox and then you start working on elimination of, you know, things that can trigger the drinking, uh, having alcohol around, all, all the other necessary things you do. All right, we do all that. But then we start talking about, like, why do you drink? Well, because you're uncomfortable. All right, well, so what's making you uncomfortable? And you start talking about the discomfort. And the discomfort is caused by... Um, this constant, like almost PTSD reaction she has to what's going on. So she's taking everything that her husband is saying in a way that is so personal. And that it being personal part is her picking it up. So now she's like, she's picking all this stuff up and she, now she's responsible for putting it down. So putting it down wouldn't happen if she didn't pick it up in the first place. So how do you depersonalize a message that's coming at you? And the only example that I really, probably the first example I had was when I was back in the early 90s. I was a school teacher um, and I had learned from uh, in my mid-20s and, and later 20s when I was working at summer camp programs with teenagers and I was a director of a camp and teenagers, man, they can work you to death. And uh, back then we didn't have the internet. We didn't have cell phones. So people just used each other to talk and spread information. And so behaviors of uh, teenagers were different than they are today, no doubt. But um, teenagers, man, they can be really uh, nasty and offensive and uh, be inappropriate. And they don't, they don't know how they sound. Their hormones are going crazy. So they're just completely out of control uh, emotionally. And so there was a woman at this camp who was a school teacher um, and she would listen to these teenage girls. And I had never uh, been involved in 
trying to deal with teenage girls before um, as a as a uh, responsible adult supervising uh, people, and I'd never supervised teenage girls, and it was uh, c- kind of shocking because they can be pretty nasty at times. And uh, I watched this woman. They, these girls would walk up to her, and they were like, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16 years old. And they would come up to her, and they'd want something, or they'd, they'd need something. But instead of being polite and nice about it, they would be just really kind of abrupt and nasty and dismissive. And she would listen to them, and she wouldn't respond uh, initially. She would just listen to what their demands were, or whatever ridiculous thing they were saying. And it was done in an inappropriate manner. So she would just look at them and say, um... You want to try that again? And the the girl would be, you know, like, well, I, you know, and then she'd say it again. And she'd say, well, that was close. Try again. And if the young lady would finally figure out she was being rude and inappropriate. And she would change her tone and change the question and be pleasant again. And I found that fascinating because I had never, uh, you know, I'm a male. So my technique would be to confront she was not taking it on like she wasn't picking it up so there was nothing to put there was nothing to put to let go because she didn't pick it up in the first place later on when i was a school teacher i i I did the same thing um with the students in in my class i was a sixth grade social studies teacher and uh that's right up puberty right so 13 14 years old and um so these kids would would do that they'd just be so nasty and i would just look at them and say no try again and I'm not going to pick up what you're putting down because this is this is inappropriate and I'm not going to react to it. I did see other teachers that would react to it very negatively and it didn't do any good like that. They just it didn't help. So I learned that technique back then and I, tr- I try to do it. It's still it's it's, you know, nearly impossible with your own children sometimes when you're faced with that stuff um, as any parent of a teenager would understand. But so. Uh, the idea of, of not picking it up in the first place. I'm not going to personalize what you're saying. And that's what I try to teach the people who are experiencing this in their homes um, with their spouses, boyfriend, girlfriend, children. Like, listen, man, just you're, they're saying something They're you know, unless they're trying to verbally assault you personally, that's different, right? The personal attack, that's a different thing. But if they're just coming at you and you just don't, you're not taking this on. It's like, uh, try again. Well, what do you mean? Try again? Well, it wasn't very pleasant. Try again. Instead of responding to what they're saying, or rather responding to how they're saying what they're saying, which is instinctive. I think in, in some cultures of families, they, they just, start you know immediately counterattacking because you're getting defensive because you're being attacked don't get defensive take a neutral position take a neutral position don't react immediately to how they're saying it but rather work on getting the way the message is coming to you stated differently See, I'm not going to pick, you're trying to provoke me and I'm not being provoked at all. So it's not like I'm going to get defensive. I'm not going to ignore you. I'm not going to counterattack. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to do none of that. I actually don't respond. And you're going to get a different outcome because you didn't pick up what they were trying to give you. So you don't have to let it go. 
So think about that. You don't have to let it go if you don't pick it up in the first place. If you don't pick it up, there's nothing to put down. And so if you can get the person to stop, you know, giving you something that you would then have to put down. And in the case of an addict, you want to drink it away. I mean, that's certainly what I was doing when I was younger. I was drinking all my problems away, drinking all the anger away, drinking all the resentment away or drugging it away. You don't have to, right? So, you know, when somebody has, has an issue with usage, how do you stop? Well, you know, honestly, you got to stop what's coming at you because you're reacting to it. And, and if you think about it, if somebody goes into rehab, they're now out of touch with everything that was around them previously. They're not, they're living in a different place with different people in a different environment and they get, they have a voice. So the, the attacks, the, the condescension, all the, the, you know, passive aggressive, you know, or aggressive, aggressive stuff is no longer there. The threat response doesn't need to be engaged. Initially, when people go to rehab, the threat response is heightened. And so anything and everything that sounds like it could be what it was previously coming from their family or their friend or whatever, they will respond and they respond quickly and negatively. And so what we see in the first couple of weeks when somebody's in rehab is that they respond rapidly to anything perceived as a threat. See, that's, that's part of that, that culture change issue of trying to figure out how to let things go. Well, if you don't pick them up, you don't have to let them go. So there's nothing being given to you in those environments. So there's really nothing to let go. And what we have to do a lot of times in rehabs is we have to deescalate a person who is responding inappropriately to what they perceive as a threat. So the threat response is is excessive and inappropriate in that setting, but they don't know that because they're so hypervigilant to attack and to what's going on. And so what what I'm suggesting is in an effort to try to work on your recovery, learn to let it uh don't pick it up in the first place. Not not drugs and alcohol. Don't pick up the emotional stuff. And that's why enmeshment and codependency is so deadly in a, an addiction uh, type of a relationship. I see you and I like what I see, but I also want to fix this. That's kind of the mindset of the person who's inappropriately enmeshed with an addict. They want to fix what's going on. Okay, being helpful Harriet or help, helpful Harry is wonderful, but that's not what's needed. And so boundaries and limits and uh, changes in a culture of behavior is what's necessary. And it's challenging and difficult and time-consuming and not easy. And it permeates everything. It permeates your thoughts. It permeates your language. It permeates your body language. It permeates everything in your family. That culture of dependency, codependency, enmeshment is so strong in, in families. If you are an addict, you know exactly what I'm talking about because you a lot of times are the victim of it. Many times, perhaps not quite as often, you are the perpetrator of it. 
And so how, how do we move to change that as an addict? Well, one, start, start talking to somebody. The power of saying something out loud de-escalates in your mind the severity of it. It also, many times this happens in my practice, somebody will say something that they've been thinking, but they've never said it. Uh, they say it out loud, and then they kind of like get this puzzled look on their face, or they'll start laughing. Or sometimes they'll just even openly admit, well, I sound like a jackass. That doesn't sound right at all. And I'm like, yeah, you said it out loud, and now that it's out in the air and you let me bear witness to you saying it, you can hear yourself and you can hear the words. Whereas when it was in your head, you weren't hearing it. You were just, it was an echo chamber. You believed the falsehood of your own words, but you just said it out loud and it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? And they're like, yeah, okay. So then we will practice on trying to change that. So we'll reformulate what they're thinking you know we'll say it again i'll say it they'll say it i'll repeat it back to them they'll say it again and they'll try it's like okay how do we make that message actually sound not so derogatory or not so manipulative or not so condescending or not so ridiculous that's just as ridiculous and it's like yeah i didn't really think of that so the the power and the influence of verbalizing it out loud it really can de-escalate it that's one Two, when you're experiencing it, understand that there is a process you can use or take a step back. And I try to, I've been trying to teach people this for a long time. And a lot of this is, is the familiarity of doing things like forgiveness, where you can learn to take a step back emotionally from whatever is occurring and not absorb it. The story that I told earlier uh, about the, the, woman who was the teacher who was encountering these teenage girls that's that's an example of it she was not taking personally what they were saying she knew that she was the adult she knew that she was in charge she knew that they were going to start speaking to her inappropriately because they this is what they do she knew that they had an agenda and and she also knew that ultimately she could give grant or or refuse whatever it was that they wanted. And so she would just let that happen and she didn't personalize it. So that's, that's part of it is, is not personalizing and walling it off. I always kind of think of myself as being sort of in this observational box, uh, that has, uh, you know, an observation tower and I'm, I'm a little bit separate from whatever's going on. And when I do that, I'm very successful at not personalizing and then being able to hear what they're saying and and saying okay that didn't sound quite right it's not i don't like what you're saying and i don't like you it's that didn't sound quite right and i'm gonna now not immediately respond so you want to try again right that's it's like that right so you're just not confrontational depersonalize what's being said until you finally get to a type of message and a message that's said in a way that is appropriate that can help you a lot. And the other part of it is, so those, those boundaries or having that boundary that the other part of it is frankly, practice, practice, practice. You are not going to learn to do this first time right off the bat. It's practice. It takes practice. It takes patience and an incredible amount of forgiveness and self-forgiveness. 
if you're an addict, you are so dysregulated all the time. You don't even know what's, what's up and down, right? So just you're in that frame of mind. If you're a family member who has an addict, you probably are in the same place, but at least you don't have a chemical influence dysregulating your brain. So just practice and forgive when you make a mistake and then practice again. And then when you make another mistake, you practice again until you start getting it right. Culture change, if you viewed it from that standpoint, it's culture change. It's much easier for you to understand that it takes a lot of effort to get there to make a culture change. It'd be like if you moved from the United States to uh, Sri Lanka. Man, everything is wrong and different. And, you know, it's, you, you're having a hard time shifting how you perceive everything because language, food, uh, geography, housing, car, you know, everything, everything is different. That's what's going on when you have a culture shift and a culture shift within a family is tough, especially if somebody's rejecting it. So practice, 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 putting boundaries down, practice, being calm, practice, being uh, okay with mistakes, but practice and you'll get there. So you don't have to let it go. If you never picked it up in the first place, it can just lay there and be what it is. Those are my words of advice for today. I hope that has helped you. And I hope that you got something out of this podcast. Because if you did, then great. Because I really do appreciate it. And if you would like to be able to uh, give a suggestion to me, you can do that through comments uh, that you can add to this. Or you can reach me on my website at wellspringmindbody.com and give me some suggestions. Uh, also, I appreciate if you have subscribed to my podcast and if you can spread the word, then the audience will grow. So if you need help, go get help. Contact a rehab center, check in, get free from your addiction. It's not worth ending your life to save your addiction. So until the next time, I really want you to stay sane, sane stable and sober. And until then, this is Doc Shock, your addiction lifeguard saying, see ya.